Um, early on in my Christian walk, I, I became a believer at 11 years old. I, um, I became a believer at a, a Free Will Baptist Pentecostal church. And so I have made full swing, probably, uh, in a lot of ways, theologically, away from that. Um, but, but that's where I was. And so we... Uh, we, my dad and I, we, uh, my dad became a believer after I did. It was a really neat story. We both got baptized together. And one of the things that was really interesting is we, we were looking for a church, and my dad was like, well, let's just go to the one that's closest to us. And so it worked out. It was just a few blocks away, and uh, ended up being a, a Baptist church, a Southern Baptist church. And so we got plugged into that. And um, I, I really didn't understand because people would say, now we're going to enter into this time of worship. And I remember just feeling utterly lost. I mean, the whole entire service, I'm going, what's happening? We're standing up. We're sitting down. This guy's praying. There's a special song right before the sermon. And, you know, all the givings here. Oh, let's stand up. We're going to sing the doxology. And uh, we're singing. And then um, let's enter into the Lord's Prayer now. And then everybody's repeating these words. And I'm looking around. I'm, you know, I'm a new believer. never been to church, really. And kind of just figuring this thing out. And there's all these things. And he said, oh, like, we're going to, everybody, we're going to hold hands at the end of the sermons. We're going to sing, say, blessed be the tide that binds. Anybody know that one? Um, so we did that. And I, I was just lost. And, and what I noticed, too, was I was lost and I didn't really sense that anyone was doing this with any sense of passion or I want to do this or I'm glad I'm doing this. It was just kind of like same thing. Lord's Prayer, Doxology, Everything, the giving, it was just all going through the motions. We're doing this again. This is a Sunday morning. This is what we do. And so I, I remember just feeling this sense of, I don't know what we're doing, but it, it just seems real boring. And so I stuck with this church. I stayed with it. And I remember um, going to, I stayed with the youth group, and we, we got enough money, I think, to get a youth pastor. And so he came in, and he's like, we're going to go to camp, and it's going to be awesome, and you're going to worship. And I'm like, oh, we're going to do that again? Like, I can't wait. You know, what a fun camp. <laughs> and so he takes us away, and um, I think it was to Charlotte, North Carolina. And so it's a Louis Giglio conference is what it was. And um, at, at this point, not a lot of people knew who he was, and he's actually the founder of the Passion Movement. And um, I, was, I never heard teaching that way. I've never heard, you know, uh, some, some of the depth that he was talking about, about who God was at that point in my life. I didn't know a lot of those things. And so, but all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this, you know, because it was the 90s, um, a guy gets up with um, blonde highlighted hair. He's like, this is going to be awesome. You guys stand up your feet, and we're going to worship a true and mighty king. And I'm just like, well, this is not what I'm used to. When we talk about worship, this is not what I know. And, you know, the U2 sounding guitar comes up because every Christian band sounds like that. And then you know, everybody stands, and then, you know, the band, they kick off. And, and, you know, all of a sudden, within five minutes, I'm doing the hand motions, right? I'm doing waves of mercy, waves of grace. That's because it was the 90s again. We, those are the songs. You know, let your river flow. You know, I'm doing all that. And uh, I'm spinning. I'm clapping behind my back. I mean, just doing all kinds of things that I never would do before. And then all of a sudden, um, I was like, well, this is worship. Like, I was like, you know, cocky about it. I was like, this is it. I've, got, I've mastered worship in like eight minutes. Like, I know worship now. And I would come back home, and when I came back from that trip, I was on the spiritual high that everybody talks about. I came back home, and I remember sitting in my church, and I was watching, and they were like, Psh, they don't know worship. I know worship. I'm 15, right? All 15-year-olds, they know worship better. And they, we need to be clapping behind our back 
Like, where's some hand motions, you know? And I had this attitude like, this, I know worship, they don't. And so in reality, was my heart really wasn't transformed. I had just fallen in love with a method. And I had put all of what I knew on worship on singing. It's like, that's worship. That's, that's what worship is. So let me just pose to you that perhaps worship isn't all what we think that it is. Because at that point, I would not mastered worship at all. I, I didn't even scratch the surface. I mean, is worship singing? Yes, it is singing. That is part of what worship is. But it's not all that worship is. Worship cannot be all just singing. Worship is vast. It's vast. And in this text, I'm so encouraged because we do learn about worship from a, a teenage girl. From a teenager who was a peasant, who was humble. And we learn about how she saw worship and how she saw God and how she worshipped him with all of her heart and our soul. And that's what I want. That's what I want. And that's what I want everyone here to know and experience. So we, la- we left off last week with this angel Gabriel. He is showing up to uh, two individuals. He shows up to um, uh, Zechariah, who is old, and his wife is advanced in years. That's what the scriptures tell us. And it, scripture just continually tells us that Elizabeth is old. Like, I feel really bad for Elizabeth because she's just like, can I get a break? You know, I'm always known as the old person. And so it's saying that Zachariah is old, she's old. And, and then it says that uh, Gabriel comes to her and tells her she's going to have a baby. She's going to have a child. And uh, I remember uh, Zachariah last week, he was just like, there's no way that's possible. So he silenced um, God silences him, and he can't talk for uh, nine months. And I said last week, my wife, who's pregnant, has been praying that same prayer, that I would be silent for her nine months, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, but what you see here is he comes to Mary, and he totally different experience when he comes to Mary. She has this sense of feeling unworthy that the God of the universe would send a messenger to her and tell her that she is going to have a child. And she's a virgin. She feels unworthy and she humbly, she just says, God, just show me how this is going to happen. Show me how this is going to go down. And so what he does is he graciously shows her because he responds to her humility, her humble heart, for her sense of all that she had for God. And what we learn uh, in the passage that uh, Mary and her cousin are both having a child uh, around the same time. I think Elizabeth's going to be a little bit uh, uh, earlier than her. So, that, so what we see here, uh, Mary wants to go and talk to her cousin Elizabeth about what's taking place and about how they have the same situation. And so they're going to come together and rejoice here in the passage. And you're going to see true, authentic worship here in this text. So look at uh, Luke 1. We're going to get 39. It says, And in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the town of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, um, this would have been roughly, uh, uh, they were probably going to be four, five, six months in of their pregnancy at this point. Um, so they're, they're meeting each other. And then this is the first response that you see um, here in the text. It says this, and when, and this is verse 41, and when Elizabeth heard 
the greeting of Mary, the baby, leaped in her womb. Now, I don't know about you, but first off, are you not amazed and slightly humored by what just happened? I mean, John is in Mary or Elizabeth's belly, and all of a sudden, Mary, who has Jesus in her belly, just John being in the presence of Christ, he leaps. He leaps. And, and, and if you know anything about John, later on in Scripture, you realize that's so John, right? That is so John. But what you see here is actually a promise. Because what you see in, in verse 14, I'll just read. Verse 14 is a promise that John would have the Holy Spirit of God in him while he's in his mother's womb. So he's got the Spirit of God in him. And what you see really is this thing coming to pass that the Spirit of God is showing evidence that he's in the presence of Christ. It's not really John. It's the Spirit of God in him that is jumping in her belly. So you're trying to figure out why in the world is this happening? This is, this is so strange. This is, a, this is kind of humorous, but it's strange that this would happen. And verse 41 kind of tells us even more. It says, And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what you'll find in Luke is that he talks about the Spirit of God more than any other gospel writer. Uh, Luke um, loves emphasizing the Holy Spirit's work in the gospels and throughout Christ's ministry and throughout Christ's life. And so he uses it in a very specific way. Like he uses it multiple times in the first two chapters. Uh, he uses it here. He uses it um, talking about how John will be born, of, uh, how the Holy Spirit is in the mother's womb, how uh, Elizabeth here, she's filled with the Holy Spirit. You find later that Zechariah uses it in verse 67. It talks about how he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he began to prophesy and talk about the great things of God. Then you even see in like Simeon in chapter 2 verse 27. He talks about how the Holy Spirit gave him peace that um, he would see Jesus until um, he, he, would, he would see Jesus at some point and, until he died. And so you have these continual promises that the Spirit shows up to really bring encouragement and affirmation for these believers in Christ who are trusting in promises from angels. And they're reading prophecy from old and old and old. And they're trying to figure out, is God really going to do this or not? Is he really going to show up for me? Is he really going to intervene? And what you're seeing here in, in chapters 1 and 2 specifically of Luke, the Spirit of God is moving in a powerful way so that people would hear and know the plans that God has laid out. It's, it's really interesting to me. So what God is doing here with this interaction between Mary and her cousin Elizabeth is he's affirming what you have in your belly is the real thing. This is real. John is going to prepare the way of Jesus and it's him saying and affirming what's going to happen. He's declaring his plans. If you ever had that time where you've perhaps uh, been doubting God and he brings to light a passage of scripture just out of nowhere. And it just begins to encourage your heart. You just begin to say, wow, God is really good to me. I'm so grateful for what he's done. And, and the spirit of God uses that truth in your life to, to uplift you and encourage you and let you know that you're not alone. Maybe it's just God using a person in your life. 
bringing a person in your life and you just had this really doubtful season or discouraging season and God just brings a person in your life and all of a sudden you're like, man, the Spirit of God just really moved in that moment because he used that person to speak into my life and now I'm encouraged and now I know that he's got plans here. He, he's, he's, he is sovereign and good over my life. And so in these moments, I think we just realize how big and vast God is. It makes us just want to worship him more. I, I don't know if you've experienced that, but I, I definitely have that. Those moments where perhaps you're just, you're reading that same passage that you've never read, and then all of a sudden that verse means something to you now. You just go, oh, that's what that means. And all of a sudden there's this sense of my life will never be the same now. There's a sense of brokenness over that. My life will never be the same. I am blown away. God, are you sure that you want to give me this amount of grace? Are you sure that the gospel really works in this part of my life? Are you sure? Like, have you, have you seen what I've done? Do you know what I've done? And what Christ does, the Spirit of God works in your life and really uses people and uses the Word and uses other things to speak to you and bring peace to you. And this is what's happening here in the text. So, I want you to stop and think here about the, the amount of encouragement a girl like Mary would need. She's a teenage girl who has a, she's a virgin. She's got to go live this out. And we talked about this last week. Among her family, among her, the one, guy that she's really uh, engaged to, betrothed to. She's got to live this out in her culture and she's got to convince people, yeah, I am uh, a virgin. And I'm having a baby. Not only that, but what's actually happening here is even deeper. Because what you see here, Mary and Elizabeth, in their bellies, have two people that will change the rest of the world forever. And they get to be a part. They get to be vessels of that. They're women. They're peasant women. In this culture, um, Jewish men... Would, would, would pray, thank you, God, for not letting me be born a Gentile or a woman. I mean, these guys, this is, this is not even part of the culture that a woman would even carry something like this. But God is going after something that is countercultural. And these two women are vessels of what God is about to do. And so God in his goodness uses his spirit to enlighten them and encourage them that this thing is really going to happen. Look, look in verse 46. It says this. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on this humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now and on, from now on all generations will call me blessed. All right. I want to know, point out a couple of things here. It's very interesting because right away we realize that she acknowledges her need for a Savior. I mean, she calls him Lord. She fears Jesus who lives inside of her womb. All right, I want you to wrap your mind around that. I mean, historically, many believe that you know, Mary is divine. Some even would say that she's sinless. But right here, she's saying, I need a Savior. I mean, Thomas Aquinas, who was a, a Roman Catholic priest, read this um, passage in the 1200s. Who believed that, and he was like, "Dang it, she needs a savior." There goes that one, right? 
She needs a Savior. She needs Christ. And so what you're seeing here is this is a great place for Mary to be because she realizes her need for a Savior and she realizes her spirit wants to rejoice in Him. Her soul wants to, to glorify Him with everything. And that is where the posture of worship needs to be where we realize that we need a Savior and our whole life is about lifting His name up and glorifying Him uh, with everything. I mean, look, at, look even further in verse 48 through 49. It says He is looking on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now and on all generations will call me blessed. For he is mighty and has done great things for me. Holy is his name. I mean, she gets it. She gets it. I I think one of the things that we're seeing highlighted here is the sense of all with the sense of great humility and gratefulness. For me, one of the most frustrating types of people to be around, and this might be my own sinfulness or this might just be just seeing this in people's life or maybe just seeing this in myself. Um, the most frustrating people to be around are those who think that they have it all figured out. Like they, they know everything. Like you can't teach them anything new. And while you're trying to teach them, they teach you how to say it better. Right? Have you ever been around that person? Am I the only sinful person here that sees the flaws in others? Those are frustrating. Like, like people that can try to convince me how good of a husband or good of a wife they are. They will always worry me. Like anyone that's like, yeah, I'm a good husband, blah, blah, blah. I'm a good wife, blah, blah. You know, they worry me because I'm like, do you really know how sinful you are? Like, do you really know how sinful, or do you really know how holy God is? Because I think when we do that, we realize, hey man, I'm going to try my best at being a husband, but I ain't that good, right? I'm a pretty sinful guy. Like, when Jess asked me, she's got this um, um, shower at our, at our house this weekend, and I, you know, I'm excited about it, I guess, and uh, she says, you know, I need you to help me with things around the house. And I'm like, oh, I just want to watch TV, you know, 30 hours, right? In a car. Don't you feel sorry for me? No, go do it, right? And so, um, and and my heart, I did it. I mean, on the surface, if you, if you saw, like, on a list of things, Jess asked Ben to do this. He did it. You would think, oh, he's a good husband. But if you knew um, the wickedness in my heart that said, no, I don't want to serve her. I don't want to do that. Are you kidding me? Are you, are you kidding me? So I, I think we have to realize how sinful we really are. And then on the other side of that, how realize how holy God is. And so for for you to really truly repent of anything in your life, you're going to have to get deep into your heart and your soul and say, this is how unholy I am. This is how wicked I am. But this is how holy he is. This is how good he is. He still gives grace to me, man. Even in my wickedness of getting up and putting out a remote and ah, I'm getting the drill out and you know, drill a hole in the wall. And I, even in the wickedness of that, God still gives me grace and he still blesses me. He's holy and he's good. It's nothing that I've done. And so if you're not doing that, what ends up happening is you end up being in the kiddie pool. Like, I'm a pretty good person. Jesus is my homeboy and this is my worship. If, if you 
live in that world, you will stay in the shallow end and you'll never grow deep in the gospel. The essential part of you really worshiping him is to realize that we are totally depraved without him. We absolutely need him. And we are totally sinful in every area of our life. And we need him. That's good. That's good because he's a savior. I mean, he's a savior. He saves us from who we are. That's the gospel. And so, you go further in that. And we, that's the way that we worship. We we found this humble estate. We realize the holiness of God like Mary does. But you find further in the text something else. He says, And mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of a humble estate. It's really interesting here, just a little side note. It's interesting that Mary is very familiar with Scripture. Um, she is literally quoting, I mean, Proverbs 19.23, let's just have that up on the screen. It says this, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. It says Psalm uh, 89.10, You curse Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty Arm. Notice the similarities between just the Proverbs and the Psalms of what she's saying here. She's literally quoting scripture. And this is very interesting here because she is likely illiterate. I mean, it, most women, especially young women in that culture, did not know how to read. So she has allowed scripture to saturate her heart that in moments of worship she's bringing up things that she knows about him and praising him for what he's done. And she's saying, but, but I've got to be honest with you, when I read 50 through 52, it, it frightens the mess out of me. And like for all of us as we read this, it ought to kind of worry us a little bit. It, it, it should, I mean, specifically, if you are prideful, and you're sitting here and you're saying, I'm not prideful, this is fine. And you, just, you might just want to read over this again, right? I mean, don't just brush over this thing. I mean, seriously, read over 50 through 52 again. Look what it says. And his mercy is for those who do what? They fear him from generation to generation and has shown his strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their throne and exalted those of a humble estate. Notice what's happening here because if you are prideful and you're just walking in this and you're just brushing over this like, this is not me, I'm not worried. Really, he's going to scatter you, man. Like, he's going to destroy your thoughts. Right? He, he's, he's not looking favorably upon those who are proud. I remember being in seminary. I, my good buddy Dave, um, uh, three weeks ago, he came and spoke here. A good buddy of mine. We, we, we did a lot of things to get a lot of life together. Um, a lot of interesting conversations. But one guy in our life, he's a younger guy than us. And um, he came out of, a, I think, a thriving ministry. And he then went to seminary after. And he kind of had a major chip on his shoulder. I mean, he, he, was, he was arrogant. And he would tell you, man, I'll, I'll teach you how to make your ministry thrive from zero to a hundred. And just like, I mean, he's going on and on, dropping numbers, dropping names, who he hung out with. And um, I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I kind of avoid, you know, I'm just like, I'm passive. And I'm like, I just, you know, I'll just get away from that guy, you know. That was my response. And Dave, you know, who's the most loving, compassionate guy I know, he's like, man, 
I just want to sit down and tell him, man. Like, he's prideful, man. I'm like, ah, oh, you know, Dave, you know, let's just leave it going. You know, let's, we don't have to hang out with that guy. You know? Dave's like, no, man, it's not our responsibility. We're believers in Christ. We've got to go and do. And so I'm like, all right, all right. So he does. And um, Dave sits down with him. He's like, man, you know, I've, I've noticed areas in your life where you're, you're prideful. And he goes, I've noticed people avoid you because, because they see this amount of pride in your life. And the guy goes, well, I'm just proud of what Jesus has done for me. And Dave's like, stop right there. Anytime the Bible talks about pride, it's not a good thing. Like, God does not like pride. So you just need to be careful in how you use that word. And the guy, it, it wasn't a teachable moment for that guy. But Dave walked away from that going, that's true. Like, God just really does not like pride. I mean, if you know anything about Scripture in the Old Testament, this constant phrase of God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you look in James 4, 6, we'll have that up. It says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. He's, he's re-quoting all of what we see in the Old Testament. And Mary here, she's got this idea of pride versus humility and that God gives grace to those who are humble. What I like about this, uh, what she says here in the, in the thoughts of the proud, or the thoughts of their hearts rather, it literally means, and we, took, we covered this back when we did Philippians, it actually means their imagination. The thoughts of their hearts is their imagination. That's where the word imagination comes from, this, this phrase that we see here in the New Testament. And what this means is, in your own mind, you're right. You've made up and recreated a world where you are at the center and God is somewhere on the outside and you have it all figured out and this is what it means to be proud ourselves. We're at the center. We're number one. We're to be worshipped. We're to be praised. Have you ever had that person that just like, they apologize, but they apologize in such a way that it's like, I'm sorry that you heard it that way. Right? Because in their imagination, it's right. You're the one who didn't hear it right. Or, I'm sorry you misunderstood me. Or, they apologize, but they do it in such a way to justify why you made them do that. Right? You ever done that? I've done that. I apologize to Jess. Jess, yeah, I've just had a bad night. But if you just remember next time when I'm tired like that, maybe not bringing up, blah, blah, blah. Right? Because in my imagination, I wouldn't have sinned if she wouldn't have worked it that way. I wouldn't have disobeyed God if it wasn't for that. In my imagination, in the thoughts of my heart, I'm right. I think about lust. I just throw one out there. Think about lust. Lust says, in our imagination, we say, I need to sleep with that person. I need to see that person in this way. And in our imagination, that person would also sleep with us. So we dwell on it. This is what pride does to us. It brings up an imagination that really doesn't exist where we're the center. I need that to make me happy. I need that to satisfy my joy. And, he's, and God is there saying, I am everything. I'm everything. What more do you want? I'm here to satisfy you. And you're saying, no. This will satisfy me. In our imagination, we replace those things for God. Put those things and they become idols. So, um, 
Who does God exalt? He exalts the humble. I can imagine here Mary is singing this song out. And I don't know if, if um, Elizabeth is still present at this point or Gabriel is there. But I can imagine Gabriel because she's saying that God opposes the proud. And Ga- uh, or, um, uh, Zachariah, rather, Zachariah is there and she's saying um, God opposes the proud. And when he was prideful, that's when God made him silent. So I can imagine Zachariah just going, mm-hmm, he's, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm, right, you know, and he's wanting humility because he knows what it brings, that God gives grace to those who are humble. And so she is breaking out in this song. And then what I love here in verse 40, 53 through 56 is this. It says, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers and Abraham to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. She she gives this analogy of the rich and those who are poor. And she does this in, in really saying, see God... God showed up to the people of God. They were, they were out in, in the wilderness for, for 40 days. You got Abraham who's a nobody. He, he's literally a nobody. And God shows up to him and promises him that he will be the father of many nations. And he does it. He fulfills it. And she's remembering in his a humble estate, God showed mercy to him. God showed grace to him. And he was, and, and what she's saying is we need to be hungry if we want more mercy. And so what, what she's saying is, and what you see throughout Scripture is this contrast between the rich people and the poor people. And I always, I, honestly, I, I kind of feel bad for rich people because they just don't get a lot of good showings in Scripture. It's like, yeah, it's, you'll, the likelihood of you getting into heaven is like uh, a camel going to the eye of a needle. I mean, good luck with that, right? But it's not just about the rich or the wealthy or what income bracket you are, what he's saying is, is that rich people, us Americans, I'll just say it that way, that's all of us, the likelihood of us really seeing our need for God is not real high. Because we're not hungry. We've got so many idols that we brought into our own lives. We've got so many plans and so much stuff so many possessions that we don't see our need for God. And we don't see our need for God. And so we look in, you look in the early church. It's a suffering body who has nothing. They're starving. They are oppressed. You say, oh, how I want that and how I long for that. If you look at the persecuted church, you say, that's, that's a growing church. A persecuted church is a growing, healthy church. If you read Tortured for Christ by Richard Wormbrandt, what he talks about is the true church that he's ever seen. He's lived everywhere and all over the place. He's lived in the United States. And he said the best churches that he's ever seen, the strongest, most thriving churches are the ones that are persecuted. I mean, why would he say that? Because these people are hungry. These people are starving. They need God to show up. And if he does it, they're not going to get fed. Right? If God doesn't get them out of the suppression, they're going to stay there. So in our state, how do, we, how do we do this? Is that what we need? I mean, do we really need to be a persecuted church to, to get worship? To really grasp worship? I don't think so. But I will say this. Maybe we should just come hungry. 
And how do we do this? I think we have to fight our idols. Because our idols are things that in our imagination and our pride we replace and we put in front of God. And we say, this is what I worship. This is what I want. This is what satisfies me. This is what gives me, this is what fills me up for a while. And so I'm not hungry. Thank you, God. I know that you gave your son to die on a cross for us. But thanks, I'm good. But it never fills us up. It never fills us up. And that's why we keep buying and buying and buying and bringing more things into our life because it never fills us up. It never works. So we need Christ to come in and we need to realize that if you can give me everything in the world, all the possessions, all the money, all the friendships, all the love that this world has to offer, it's still not enough because he's saying, I want you hungry. I want you hungry. And so we need to get to that place where we say, this world has nothing to offer me because it doesn't fill me up. It doesn't, I'm not more and more hungry for something greater for God himself. And so, um, if we really want to grasp worship, we have to come hungry for him. I think what we have to do is consistently fight our idols and repent of our sins. I find it very interesting, um, R.C. Sproul and his great, uh, commentary called A Walk with Luke. Uh, he points out that uh, Luke records several songs um, in, throughout uh, Luke's gospel. He, he records several songs. And it, it's, it's interesting because the Holy Spirit kind of inspires these songs to encourage other believers, even encourage us today. And that's what the Spirit of God is doing today, using Mary's song to encourage us. And what you see even in the Old Testament is people would sing songs like the songs of Moses. And people would sing songs remembering uh, what God has done and how he's brought them out of captivity. And that's what most of the time people would sing in response to what God has brought them out of. So God would bring um, the people of Israel out and they would break out in a song. And what I love here about this is because at this point, nothing has really happened yet. But she's singing because she knows what, what is about to happen. She knows that Christ is going to redeem all people to himself that, that are broken and need him. He's going to do that. He's going to call people to himself. She knows that. She's, victor- she's saying, this is victorious. And she's singing this song. What you even see that I find later in Scripture, and this is something that I'm still trying to wrap my head around a little bit. But God, it says in Revelation 5 and Revelation 14, it says in both places, uh, chapter 5 and chapter 14, that God is going to give us, while we're in heaven, a new song. So we're going to be singing out to him a new song. We're worshiping him with all of our hearts and we're consistently hungry with no interference. Consistently hungry with no interference. We just want more of him. We want to know him more. We want to hear more about how he redeemed this person, how he redeemed this person. I've talked about how this person is raising their glasses and claiming this is what he's done for me. This is what Christ has done for me and it's us singing the praises and we are not we're, we're, we're consistently hungry for more and more of him. We don't have idols in heaven. There's no idolatry. It's all straightforward worship and praise of God. And we can't wrap our minds around even that concept sounds boring to us in our world because we have so many idols. We're like, no iPods? Are you serious? Where's Netflix? Right? I'll be able to worship God better if he's got Netflix. 
But let, just imagine this world without any of that, that not only do we sign small satisfactions here, but we actually get to be in the presence of the one who created all of these things that we love. So just take ourselves away from this and say, the things that I invest my life in are not new songs, they're old songs. I want to be in the presence of God where I am able to sing a new song of what he's done for me. So this morning, I invite you, in your own imagination, you have these worlds that you've created and you've brought in idols to fulfill those, that world. You brought in idols to say, I'm satisfied if I have this. And what scripture shows and what Mary shows is that he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So we need to come humbly this morning fighting our idols so that we could truly see him as who he is so that we can come hungry and saying, God, this world is not enough. You're enough. You're everything. So my prayer is that we would do that this morning. We would really know what it means to worship him. Really see that. So let's pray.